to the show. Great to be with you today. Thanks for listening in on the radio or podcast. Paul George in the studio with the big deacon, Deacon Adam Conk. You just called me big on radio. That's okay. Well, you're not really huge. You actually lost weight. You're losing weight. Are you really? You're in the midst of uh, Exodus 90, and I can tell you've shed some pounds. Yeah, for those who aren't familiar, Exodus 90 is this um, 90-day spiritual boot camp you can go through. It's made to image PX90, which is like this bodily training boot camp you can do. But this is a spiritual boot camp. And you do fasting with it. Fasting, and you can't snack between meals, which apparently I did a lot of. Right. Absolutely. We also have Uncle Chad, producer Chad in the studio. Chad, how's it going? Oh, I'm doing well, doing well. Good. Yeah, snacking, so, snacking's the hardest part about Exodus 90. I had 90, no I idea how much I ate between meals. Well, Exodus 90 was started by a group of seminarians who were really wanting to fast and and grow in virtue and in discipline in certain areas of their life, and they started it, so people have done it. But look, uh, fasting and prayer have been around for centuries. This is not a new concept. <laughs> That's pre-Jesus right there. Yeah, it's pre-Jesus and post-Jesus. Yeah. You know, the art of fasting and discipline and growing in virtue and, um, you know, growing in just self-mastery to be the best that we can be, you know. So, but what's cool, and I'm not going to give it away because usually you're not supposed to talk about you know, who you fast and what you fast for. But when we were talking about it, because I called you out on it because we went to lunch and you didn't eat, and I was really ticked off about that. <laughs> and you're like, okay, I'm doing a fast. So you had to tell me. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I know you didn't want to, but you had to because I was, like, going to shove some food down your throat. <laughs> you being a jerk. Yeah. He was being a jerk about it. He was, actually, because he's like, no, I'm <laughs> no, not eating. No. no. I don't know. But anyway, what you said is that a group of guys all came together to fast, you know, for – specific person and intentions and i thought that was cool that it was a a communal thing not only a personal thing but a communal thing which is really neat yeah and i think it's something i want to continue past exit's nice idea of um fasting and penance particularly for priests um as a deacon it's just since ordination, my heart is all about serving the priesthood, and that really is what the diaconate is. It's supposed to serve the priesthood, serve the people of God by serving the priests who are the shepherd of the people of God, right? So I think one of the best services I could provide is to help fight Satan off their tail because he is on them like uh, white on rice, as they say. Uh, you know, mm. the devil hates priests. And the more, I, the more I get exposed to the world of the church, the more it's pretty clear that the devil is after every single priest with like laser focused precision. And so to help them battle that, I could think of few better things I could do as a deacon. No, I agree. Absolutely. And look, the devil is after any vocation that's supposed to be holy and trying to live mm-hmm. in holiness, which is that is what a vocation is about. The sacramental vocation to is to grow in holiness and to be about a reflection of Jesus to the world, God's image and love to the world. Priests in particular, you know, hold a, a you know, a, a sacred place of representing Christ to the world, right? I mean, yeah. their, their vocation is is a big deal. But, you know, one of the tactics of the enemy is to divide and conquer, to isolate. And when we can become isolated in our lives, the enemy can have a great effect on our life, you know? And one of the things about our brother priests is a lot of times that they do get isolated. They do feel alone. They are at a parish by themselves. They you know, don't have, you know, maybe that support or whatever the case may be. So I do think it's it's cool that um, you're doing that. 
Well, and like you said, every vocation has its problems for the devil. Um, we have two sacraments. All vocations are awesome. They're all callings from God, right? But there are only two vocations that have sacraments associated with them, holy mm-hmm. orders and matrimony. And as sacraments, what are sacraments? They, they bring about what they symbolize, you know? So the man and woman join together for life as a symbol and a, an image, a sacrament of Christ's unity with the church that is forever, right? Like they, this sign of a marriage covenant brings about this fidelity of Christ for his church, right? And so the devil hates it. He wants to destroy it. And the devil obviously is after families, like left and right. Mm-hmm. But the priest, the symbolism there, it's, it's the connection. The priest is literally the bridge between God and the world. Like, that is the priesthood, even beyond Christianity, all pagan priests. This is what the priest is. The priest is that person who is that connection between us and God. So if the devil destroys the priesthood, he's destroyed that sacramental reality of a connection between us and God. And he hates the priest for that reason, you know? And so he's after them big time. And he hates the priest. He hates uh, the first priest, Jesus Exactly. You Jesus know, is the high priest. The high priest. And, you know, the, the imagery and in Scripture, you know, I mean, the temptation in the desert. I mean, the Satan was vicious towards Jesus. I mean, like, held nothing back to tempt him and to destroy him, right? Um, imagine with that such force that he would come after, you know, any priest, you know, and our priests are reflections of Christ to the world. You know, they, they stand in persona Christi. And in the New Testament, the two big images of Jesus are the high priest and the bridegroom, right? Like he is the groom, that marriage symbol, and he is the priest. And, uh, and so the devil's after the Lord in the church as groom and as priest, mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. And even to merit, the, the, talk about the merit of fasting for married people, like when, you know, Jesus is tempted, we're also tempted to be isolated. And nothing isolates us more than like that slavery to our appetites, our isolates us from our spouse more than like that slavery to our appetites. And, you know, there's nothing to connect us to the transcendent like prayer does, but also maybe less obvious like fasting does. Like, God, I'm hungry, you know, but, <laughs> <laughs> hey, but, hungry, but actually. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so... um Chad, do you have a have you seen? What did you say? That is so interesting. Oh, for real though? Speaking about marriage and things like that, mm-hmm. um, our rates of like cohabitation, which is not marriage, mm-hmm. like to live together with right. your significant other before marriage, young adults from the age of 18 to 44, that's 59% have at least some at some point cohabitated. So 60% cohabitate 60%. before um, they're married actually have at least some point in their lives. Wow. Wow. Cohabitated. Yeah. That's crazy. You know, because you talk about sacrificial love, you know, we were talking about and you know, God's image to the world. And that's what marriage is. It's a reflection of God's image to the world, two people loving each other, but it's, it's sacrificial, it's giving. And we're going to get into that because, you know, beautiful feast this weekend is, um, St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta, you know, and I have to have, add mother in there, but we'll get to it. Um, <laughs> so, it, you know, it's interesting to me because the statistics will sh- actually tell you that if you, you have a greater chance of divorce if you cohabitate, mm-hmm. which is crazy because most people would say, 
oh, we're going to live together and we're going to try it out. We're going to try this whole like relationship marriage, you know, not married, but we're going to, you know, pretend like we're married to see if it works. And then if it does, then maybe we'll get married. I don't know, maybe. But actually, statistics say if you live together before you're married, you have a higher, a much higher percent of divorce than if you, um, mm -hmm. you know. You have any theories on why you think that is? I do, actually. You've thought about that before? Yeah, I've thought about it a few times. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't even think they're theories. I think it's, you know, there's, mm -hmm. there's some, you know, real clear truths. Is One is... Uh, when you when you cohabitate, uh, when you you have no commitment there, there is no real understanding of sacrificial love. It's just I'm going to do what I want, when I want, how I want to do it, and we're just going to do this together. There, there's no sense of sacrifice. And what you find out is obviously to really fully love someone forever takes a lot of sacrifice and fasting and dying to self and self-discipline. And if you just have no, you know, like no boundaries to that, then, you know, what mm -hmm. ends up happening is that people live together and they're like, oh, this is harder than what we thought. So we're not going to do this anymore. We're going to break up, yada, yada. Yeah. And I think uh, when you cohabitate before marriage, there's this, the change that takes place during marriage seems less significant than, you're like, okay, well, do I have to really live that differently when I wasn't committed to you as to, as to, as opposed to when I am committed to you for a lifetime, like what changed, what looks different. But I can remember, I mean, like being really excited to live with my wife when the time came around and like everything changed. Mm -hmm. It looked a lot different. Like our lives looked tremendously different in that moment. And so, yeah, I don't know. The life of commitment looks the same as a life without commitment whenever you're living together and, you know, whatever. Yeah, and I'm not saying, like, if, if people have lived together and then they get married, married in the church and the sacraments part, that they don't have a chance to have a good marriage. I mean, like, you could turn things around real quick. But I think the divorce rate goes up to, like, 80% if you are living together. And there is an assumption if you're cohabitating that you're also sleeping together, right? So mm -hmm. you're not chased in, in the marriage. And when you don't have a discipline of abstinence and chastity in a relationship, then what happens when you get married and you have to have abstinence and chastity in your marriage? Because a lot of people don't realize that when you get married, like that's still part of the marriage. Like there are times where you do abstain because of the good of the other person or a situation or whatever the case may be. If you don't have self-control, you know, you know, Adam, you're doing this fasting. If you don't have self-control, then you can't fully love another person if you have no mm -hmm. self-control. And then, of course, if you don't have chastity, which is which is not abstinence, chastity is the ability to to love authentically, to see the good of the other person, to uphold the dignity of another human, and particularly someone that you're in relationship with, and to to safeguard them. Right? If you don't have that in your marriage, uh, then then you you know it begins to crumble, it begins to fall apart, and what people when they get married, it's like, oh, like, I don't have that self-discipline. I don't have that chastity. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it just causes a lot of tension. Yeah, and the men go pout in the corner yeah, and be upset, and the wife doesn't understand why, and yeah, it's a mess. Well, Chad, I think you're touching on a very important topic to bring up with young people is that marriage is something new, something that happens new. And it's our fault for teaching these people that marriage is not something new, that marriage is just a paper that you sign, a legal transaction that takes place, and it can be unsigned, undone. 
But I think humanity in general, since the dawn of time, had had this sense that when people get married, something new happens, and there's a bond that's created that wasn't there before between these two people, but also between the all of us and these two people. Like when people get married, it changes their relationship to all of us. And even the divine aspect beyond Judeo-Christian world, like there's always been some kind of religious idea to marriage that this bond is more than just an earthly thing, right? Mm-hmm. But we've lost that so much that now like it doesn't matter. There's no bond that comes from marriage. The bond is a mutual consent to, to have sex with one another or live together, and that's pretty much it. Um, but really the marriage is a lot more than that. It's this bond that holds you together. Yeah, it's so interesting that you know, oftentimes the church takes so much heat on its stance of divorce and annulments and all those things. But the reality is, is that the reality of marriage and the sacrament of marriage is that it's a bond between a man and a woman forever. Like, mm-hmm. so if you get married sacramentally, scripture tells us the two become one flesh. It's, that's just not, it, that's not a concept. That's a reality. And that's the thing. It's like we're conceptually getting married, so we can just conceptually just break apart and nothing happens. No, when you get married, sacramentally, the two become one flesh. And through the sexual union, which is what I tell a lot of young adults who are sexually active before they get married, is you're actually, you're, you're, you're actually in, engaging in a sacramental act of two people becoming one without the sacrament and without the commitment. And what happens is you're, you're, you're becoming one flesh without the ability to commit to each other for the rest of your life. This is why it's painful. This is why the breakup is, stinks so bad. This is why you're fighting so much. It causes a lot of tension because the sexual act is supposed to be a beautiful sign of God's love within the context of the sacramental marriage where it makes sense. And maybe an analogy to help drive that home with young people is like if I, if I went on a Sunday at 11 a.m. and dressed up like a priest and celebrated Mass for the people, would you think that'd be wrong? (laughs) Like, yeah, because I don't have the ability to do that. Not only would it be wrong, it would be invalid. It'd be invalid. It'd be a horrible sin on my part. It would be a total mockery of what Mass is. It's like that with with sex. You know, sex is a sacramental symbol. Like, there's a meaning to it that if I go through with it without the ability to actually do it, because I'm not married, you, you can't have the marital act unless you're married, right? right? But if I do all the motions, just like if I showed up and did mass pretending I was a priest, I've done a great harm to not just me, but a lot of people. Well, and that's a good analogy because yeah. the reality is that, you know, what the church is asking is that we don't play marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't just dress up and play marriage. Marriage is significant. It's beautiful. It's a sacrament. And if we're going to, if we're going to get married, you know, we, we get married you know, through the lenses of the church so that we can have that sacramental grace and live, you know, in unity with one another and with God because it's the purpose of it that we don't just play it. Now, you know, statistics are also showing, Chad, that people are getting married later in life Much now, later, yeah. You know, than, you know, back in the day, people got married at 16 and 18, you know, and, you know, my parents were married at 19 and, you know, then, you know, it just kind of keeps going. I think culturally there's been a shift in like what is authentic love, you know? And so people are opting just to not commit to another person. They're living together they're not getting married. They're having multiple partners. And then, you know, and sometime in their thirties, they wake up and be like, ah, I don't want to be alone for the rest of my life. Maybe I should get married. 
that's kind of what's happening. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously a small sect of young adults who are into their faith who are really trying to do, you know, follow God's plan, do that the right way. But culturally, there's this, you know, this delay in young adults maturing and, you know, like, well, I want to buy a house and a car before I get married. And like, you know, at the end of the, your life, actually, that house and that car is going to be gone. It, that house and that car is not going to be by your side. The only person that's going to be by your side is, is your spouse. Like, so, so what's more important? Like, what I'm trying to say is, like, what's actually priority? Is it, is it love? Is it sacrament or is it like things? Is it like trajectory of your career? Is it, you know, buying a house and all? It, like mm-hmm. what, what's more important? Not that those things aren't good. What's more important? And it's just interesting culturally where we are. You yeah, know, it's I a think, lot of societal pressure. So otherwise, I mean, even me getting married at 23 and getting engaged at 22. People like, thought you were I mean, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. All over the place. Yeah. And it's, I mean, I'm not the only one by any means. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think the one of the latest statistics I was reading is that for the first time in history, so this is the first time in history statistic. Did you know that? That's pretty. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Wow. Yeah. That we have um, the same amount of adults who are not married as married. So 50% of people 18 and up are not married. Wow. And is this a... Is this, uh, International thing or a national this thing? This is um, in the United States, at wow. least culturally. So, so if you think about that, whereas it, like in 1960, 70% of 18 and up were married. You mm-hmm. know, the majority of adults were married. Now, half and half, people are just like, no, I don't want to do that. Why would I ever want to sacrifice for someone else? You know? <laughs> like, why would I ever, you know? Went back to our earlier conversation about the importance of marriage in God's plan of salvation, I mean, that that's a sad thing. Right. Because marriage is not just a life choice. Marriage is part of God's plan to save the world. 100%. And that's so, big. you know, half of the team is out there on the field. <laughs> well, that's a good point. <laughs> I mean, how are you going to win that game? You know, The other half is like, I just don't even want to play. Right. And they're on the bench. No, and I, I think culturally that's the shift that we're seeing a lot is that, you know, the salvation of the world comes through families. Mm-hmm. And the the sheer fabric of society is a family. It, it is a family, you know, having having family together, like Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, and sitting down for dinner and learning life together. And you know, when when fifty percent of adults aren't in a family, and kids, fifty percent of kids are in a broken family or not in a family, and then that begins to grow, what you begin to realize is that the whole point of family structure is gone, and then that is the foundation of your society, is this ability to have authentic love in a home. Um, and when when that goes away, like, what do you have? So then, then you just have people raising themselves or running loose or making up their own, you know, dogmas and teachings and you know it's just it it is just mass chaos so anyway all right we're going to take a break paul george show we'll be right back the paul george show is made possible in part by our partners at solidarity healthshare solidarity is the catholic solution to the healthcare problem are you paying too much for your healthcare cost Solidarity Healthshare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, 
Solidarity HealthShares members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show, Paul George, Deacon Adam Conk, producer, Uncle Chad. In studio today, thanks for listening in to the show on radio, KLFT Radio, or on the podcast. Appreciate you listening in. Thanks to all our sponsors for being a part of the show. Uh, it's a great discussion. I mean, it just kind of folds in perfectly to, um, you know, what I, one of the things I wanted to talk about in the show, which is tomorrow, September 5th, is the feast day of St. Teresa of Calcutta. Have you guys heard of her? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Chad? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was pretty young when she was alive. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she died, you know, what was interesting is that Mother Teresa was born in, in 1910, which is way before me, by the way. Um, <laughs> Couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's actually born in Albania, you know, she's, uh, and... Uh, That's in Europe. But she... she Somewhere. She died, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, you know, she th- thought she was maybe from India, because that's right, where right. she spent so much of her time and her work, but she, she wasn't. She's European. Um, and... But she died in 1997. That was the year I got married. I just graduated college. And it just seemed like yesterday. Because I have mm-hmm. a, a, you know, you were, you and I, Adam, were talking about this before we got on the show is, you know, I, I have a special affinity to Mother Teresa. I really do. There is a certain, and I say this in all holiness, l- saintly love affair with who she was and her work and everything that she exuded um, that is just, yeah, I, there's certain imagery, readings, stories that I never forget about Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Well, and just like Our Lady is an icon of the church because she is virgin and mother, right? Our Lady is virgin mother. The church is virgin and mother, mother to the mm-hmm. world, mother of our salvation. Women, but in particular consecrated women, kind of share in that ness of the blessed mother like they are virgin mothers as well and i think for our time but maybe even in a very unique way i mean i don't know if any woman has captured the world's attention not just religious like any woman has captured the world's attention ever you've had some men do this but mm-hmm. I, I it's hard for me to think of one woman that has become so famous and so interesting to the world as ever as St. Teresa of Calcutta. And so in a real way, it's like she's a gift of motherhood to the world that God gave, and not just us Catholics. Um, And motherhood is important because, you know, we look to her and we see, as a Christian, I see an icon of who I I should be. And this is what a mother is. It's the source. She's a parent. I look to her to know who I am, you know, my origins, but also my place in the world. Like, that's what moms do. And so, yeah, she has a, a real motherhood to me and, and to the rest of the world. Yeah, I think there's, you know, and look, the list is long, and we've kind of played this game before, you know, if there's a saint you can meet or spend time with. Gosh, you guys, she's at one at the top of the list for me um, in, in a sense of, of not only her, her knowledge or her theological tone or her, you know, uh, work with the poor or... But 
her love, like to be in the presence of her love. Like, like when you think of Mother Teresa and you think of sacrificial love, which is what we talked about in the first segment, uh, you think of the ability to love past and through evil, which we talked about. That's, that's what she represented, is, is a real ability to stand, whether it be in a podium uh, of a room full of wealthy people and politicians, and speak the truth in love to where it it literally was like a knife, a warm knife going through a stick of butter. It would, you know, it just, and everybody just listened. And it was like, you know, or it, it, whether it was on the streets, you know, with the poorest of the poor, picking up someone who was not even the same race, not even the same faith as her, you know, and she would love them even still. You know, like, I just have, I don't, I don't, I, you know, and the fact that she was alive, obviously, during my lifetime, you know, where you got to, you know, see her at work, you know, whether it be on TV, the news, things like that, and, uh, and to kind of get a glimpse of it was just, you know, crazy. So we celebrate her feast day, but the reality is, like, we're still talking about her, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know. It's interesting because even at her funeral, there there were politicians at her funeral who didn't agree with her, mm-hmm. but they went. Y'all, her funeral was like when royalty dies. Like if Queen Elizabeth dies one day, which we don't know because it's been, I mean, she's, she's very yeah. healthy. But what her funeral would look like, that's what Mother Teresa's funeral was. But it wasn't in a palace. It was in this very poor mother house in Calcutta, surrounded by the poor on the streets, you know, but as far as who went, it was the same guest list. It was crazy. Yeah, absolutely. I know she's just some lowly mother of a religious order in Calcutta, India. I mean, I'm sure there's others that are just like her that nobody knows who they are. Yeah. They're doing the same great work. Yeah, and there absolutely are. And I think, you know, at the end of, at the end of every sentence, she would probably say that she just wanted to stay hidden. And she probably one of the pains of her life was that she wasn't hidden, that God did use her and raise her up to be a, a visible sign mm-hmm. uh, and, a, and a spokesperson for the church and for the world. And I'm sure that there was a part of her that hated that, that didn't want to do that, that would much rather be on the streets, right, doing the work. Yet God raised her up and called her specifically for a time and a season, you know, Interestingly enough, her and John Paul II during the sort of that 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 same generational time frame to to speak to truth and you know we live in a political you know hailstorm you know in our country but you know we really always have oh yeah and you the know revolution it, was yeah. pretty tumultuous I think it's <laughs> I think it's heightened because of you know media social mm-hmm. media and the internet. Um, but here was a woman who was probably, you know, I, I hate to use this term, but probably one of the greatest politicians of all time in a sense of her policy and her ability to speak truth and love to topics like abortion and topics like social justice and just not care what people thought. And I think what people appreciated most the poor included, but also the rich and even non-believers was she kind of embodies the the reality that the presence of God on earth 
is a cooperation with human beings. And it's always been this way, you know, even with Adam and Eve. Um, but think about the Ark of the Covenant, you know, through Moses and the people cooperating with God's will, the Ark of the Covenant comes about, and now this presence of God is on earth that wasn't there before, and it draws people to God, right? Mother, maybe her defining characteristic is that to the core of her being, she cooperated with God's will so that she made him present in the room. Like her her personhood made God present in such a powerful, potent way. People who weren't even believers would say, I felt like it was in the presence of God. But the dying on the street got that presence. And this was her, her mission is that the world has thrown you away, but I'm going to pick you up and give you what I have, which is the presence of God. And they died in the comfort of that presence. You and I, I mean, look, people would literally pay tons of money and they did just to be in her presence and then you have these poorest of the poor dying on streets who got to have the comfort of being in the presence of mother Teresa as they died but it wasn't mother they were in the presence of it was God they were in the presence of but this little woman from Albania knew how to cooperate with his will so much to the core of her being that she brought his presence out in such a powerful and potent way that no one could match yeah I remember the story of um, apparently, you know, like one of the orphanages and, you know, the ministry had gotten a large donation, just a random donation, you know, like, and, you know, whatever. They just used it, like, you know. And somehow, like, word got out of the news media found out that the person who gave the donation was, like, maybe, like, in the mafia or, mm-hmm. you know, like it was dirty money or something. But, mm-hmm. you know, Mother Teresa, you know, didn't, no, or and it was money's money. It's like, and it and it didn't go to her, obviously. So, like, news media knocked on the door of the orphanage, and uh, you know, sort of asked, you know, you know, mother, what what do you think, and what are you going to do, and and are you going to give the money back, and um, you know, yada yada, right? And I don't like, I would buckle, I'd fold, I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and she was so led by the Holy Spirit. This is what she did. She said, "Y'all follow me." So this whole media crew people just followed her through the orphanage and she gets into the orphanages with all these kids who were dying they're laying down dying in the orphanage and she looks at them and says take them you can have your money back and they just were silent and just all started crying and walked away like with this sense of conversion of 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 the moment you know, and her, like her ability to to just just go right for it, you know, with 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 great conviction of what she was about, you know. And she she endured a lot of suffering because of it, you know, a lot of personal mm-hmm. suffering, a lot of sacrifice, you know, um, to fulfill the mission that God was calling her to, you know. And, you know, one of the biggest sufferings that she had was leaving the order that she first joined. You know, and she was on a train going on a retreat and said she heard a call within the call. And and she talks about this pain of having to leave that order to to follow this radical call that God was calling her to to serve the poorest of the poor. Because she was working with as a teacher and, you know, young girls in a school and just the pain of that breakup. You know, she talks about that and, you know, just so many 
things and sufferings that she went through. Her father died when she was, you know, young, you know. Anybody know her 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 real name? Agnes. Agnes. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I, lo- I like that name. Yeah, and apparently she had a nickname in the house that's not as beautiful, but Gonja. Gonja. I forget what it means, but I don't that know. was her nickname. What is, you don't know what it means? I, f- I forget. Gonja? Gonja. Gonja. It's probably something beautiful like Rose or something, but in Albanian. <laughs> Gonja. But yeah, little Agnes. And, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with her life, because she lived at a time where there were video cameras and things like that, we do have some pretty cool resources. So there is one documentary that was done on her life while she was still living. And it, this documentary uh, crew followed her around for a time. And it really is outstanding because it's not just actors playing these people. You see Mother Teresa in action. <clears throat> you can find this. And I, the title of the documentary escapes me. But there were a few done. But this is like the feature length one um, that actually interviewed Mother Teresa as well. And so... You know, you have these images of uh, her speaking with, like, this black background or whatever, but, like, she's answering questions in the interview. Y'all, this is a a major saint being interviewed and talking, and you can watch this happen. This is a great resource. I uh, can't remember the name of it, though. I'm but one, it up right now. But one scene that really impressed me, they were, the crew was following her where she went, and she was in um, uh, Beirut. It's called Mother Teresa. There you go. At least in 1986. And that's why he's the producer. (laughs) It wasn't in the 90s. So there were a few done. Uh, It says 1986. It says they follow the daily activities of Mother Teresa. Okay, that must be it. Well, she was in uh, Beirut, and there was a a lot of war going on. Yeah, in the 80s, Beirut was very dangerous. And she was visiting uh, her sisters there or whatever. And anyway, they needed to cross from one end of town to another, but there's just so many bombs going off. I mean, it's just dangerous in the... The sisters are like, Mother, we can't do this, you know, whatever. She's like, okay, let us pray. So they pray. The next day, spontaneously, the cease fighting fire. sides call a ceasefire. <laughs> and she's able to get to her where she needed to go. And this is all captured on film, you know. And so, like, the the crew's like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> right. Hey, um, hey, God, this is Mother Teresa. Yeah. I need to get across Beirut. <laughs> um, what are you thinking? Uh, ceasefire tomorrow? I mean, like... <laughs> You know what I'm saying? like, But that is honestly, you know, we kind of hear stories like that and, and we think, oh, okay, yeah, only for a second. But that's the type of faith she had. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to pray and, and God's going to take care of it. I don't know how he is, mm-hmm. but and I'm just going to follow his will and do it. You know, when she went into religious life, she never thought that she would hear this deep call to move to India to the poorest of poor in Calcutta, dress like you know, Indian women, that's where that garb, you know, their her garb came the sorry, from. Sorry, yeah. Sorry was was to just, you know, fit in and, and serve the poorest of the poor. And, yeah, I mean, she never thought that, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think all of us, you know, when we pray, we all have a call within a call. And in a sense of, like, God's, you know, you know, we're, we all, you know, live and a sacramental marriage and marriage. And that is a call, you know, I'm also called as a father, you know, and, and and as a husband. Um, and then there's a unique call just in my own heart to maybe fulfill a certain mission and, and maybe volunteer or do certain work, you know, like Adam, like you had that experience these past three or five years of this call within a call to, 
to be a deacon. Like it just kind of came out of nowhere. You never thought yeah. like when you graduated high school, hey, I'm going to be a deacon, you know? Well, I think you touched on something really important that Mother Teresa uh, is an icon for, but this idea of as a church, we don't just receive what's already been done. This is not the idea of tradition. Tradition is not we keep going what's been going on for 2,000 years. That's not tradition. That's maintenance, you know? It's like this thing has been running for 2,000 years. It's not failing under my watch. <laughs> just keep it going. That's not the church, right? Tradition is really I've received something, and now I'm going to make it my own and contribute to this line of tradition and hand it on to the next. But I have a part to play in this tradition, and it's unique and unrepeatable. And for a lot of us, I think we don't have the imagination to cons- even consider and let God use our imagination. God, how are you calling me to be the husband and father and deacon that I am? You know, like my, not me making this up, like I'm reinventing husbandry. I'm reinventing being a dad, reinventing the religious life. That's not what Mother Teresa did. She didn't reinvent something. She received what was already given but then she responded to the call that was unique and unrepeatable to her and then hands it on. And this is how the church has survived for 2,000 years because she helped renew religious life. Imagine religious life without Mother Teresa. I know it's hard to do, but it's been through a lot of turmoil after the Second Vatican Council and since. Imagine if we didn't have the witness of the missionaries of charity. The church needs people to not just be old saints, but to be you So that call within a call is really like your vocation to holiness. That's never going to be given to anybody else, but you're going to do it within the context of our tradition, our tradition of religious life, our tradition, you know, but you got to go for it and you got to do what God's calling you to do because the church needs you to be you. I mean, and, and that's what, you know, sainthood and that's, that's our call is to be uniquely who God created us to be and to, to serve him and this small blip on a screen that we have of life, you know, and it's short, you know, uh, we were talking, you know, Gretchen and I both did our DNA ancestry, Mm -hmm. you know, and you were getting like all the, all the background and, you know, history and, you know, relatives and, you know, it's kind of cool, whatever. Um, but you know, like when you start like to, to zoom out on your family tree, you think of how many, thousands of people came before me in my lineage, you know, like it's true. It's like, we're just a blip. Like we, I don't know my great, 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 great grandparents. They're just like a name, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. we have like such a short period of life to like live it to the full. And when I think when we look at the life of mother Teresa, that is one of the things it's like, she just, she just till the day she dies, she just lived it with everything that she had and I think there's there's times where I'm like, you know, I could I could give a little bit more effort. I can do a little bit more. I could be a little bit better. You know, it's beautiful to see a life not ruled by fear in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, like not constantly worried about her own death, or constantly worried about how she's going to be perceived, or constantly worried about yeah whatever it might be. Like it's I am so grateful that she had a public life, even though she didn't ask for it and didn't want it. I mean, she received so much vitriol and hate because of it because people saw who she actually was and people sometimes just hate God, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, and praise God we're not all called to that, but it's such a gift to us to see an, a public interior life. I don't know if that makes sense. Like oh, yeah. she lived prayer and lived fasting and lived love for the poor. And you get to see, I mean, it's, it's sort of like a sacrament where you get to see 
what's true on the inside, but out in the open for us to hold and, and view and cherish and love. And yeah, it gives us a real vision for what it looks like to love, what it means for us to love. And look, we all have different callings that we're not all called to do what Mother Teresa did. Of course. You know, that's why we have a uniqueness to ourselves and a discernment of how God wants to and can use us in the world, right? And if you're in a if you're married and you love your your spouse and your kids, that is a, that is a great mission. Do that really well, right? Like not all of us can go to Calcutta. But I did, you know, and we all have different, you know, some people are priests and some people are, you know, religious orders, but somebody told me once is like, you know, the uh Mother Teresa and, you know, her sisters are like joining the Navy SEALs mm-hmm. of religious orders. You know, it's, there's like levels of like, mm-hmm. you know, how, what you're called to and what you can do. And yeah. Well, we need an Air Force, we need Marines, we need the Army, but we also need those special ops folks who know how to get it done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we need those people. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I always think too, when I think of Mother Teresa, uh, Sister Claire, who uh, from Lafayette joined the Missionaries of Charity and died uh, within formation, but she died a sister of Missionary of Charity, and it was you know a sudden thing. She had this this crazy seizure situation that came up, so it wasn't like she was sick going in, or it wasn't an accident. It was just like literally God chose to take her home at a young age, but as a Missionary of Charity, and um, their formation is so powerful and potent, like that was a gift to Claire was to receive that formation, at least for a time to prepare to enter eternity. And I mean, every missionary charity I ever met, it's, it's, it's like talking to mother Teresa. It's like, Oh my mm-hmm. gosh, you know, just the holiness they exude, the presence of God that they bring. Um, and what a testament to the missionaries of charity that their formation process has remained intact. Cause that's the hardest thing to do when you lose your founder, even when your founder's alive. You know how many stories in church history, like St. Alphonsus Liguori, for example, founded a religious order. By the time he died, his brothers hated him so much, he was under house arrest, and they tried to kill him a few times. Like, Goodness. It's not easy to hand on what God has given you. Mm-hmm. So the, the vocation God gave Mother Teresa, and then the task to hand it on to other people, has been almost impossible in the history of the church. Like, literally almost impossible. And even when it's worked, you've had periods of renewal, corruption, renewal, corruption that go on, the missionaries of charity have been able to hand on whatever God did in Mother Teresa has happened 20,000 times over in all these nuns with almost exact precision. That is unbelievable and unheard of in the history of the church. Ah. Hot dog. What a leader she must have been what a, yeah. with the forethought to say, this is how we're going to do it. Well, and, you know... I can't speak to all of it, but here's what I do know is that, and I'm sure there were a few, but for the most part, they had a real clear mission. Mm-hmm. And if you were going to join, you were sold out for the mission because it was like not for the faint of heart, mm-hmm. right? That really should be the church. Mm-hmm. Like there should be real clarity on what the mission of the church is. And when you sign up, for your vocation, you should know exactly what you're signing up for. Marriage, deaconing, <laughs> priesthood, 
religious like you see what i'm saying because when there's not clarity and and you're not sold out on the mission you give up you're you're not fired up about it you don't get behind it you 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 know you grow tired and weary and and because you're like what am i doing well that's the the importance of formation like if you join the army you know you're about to join this strenuous boot camp experience that leads to you know so like you really think twice before you sign up because you know what you're about to go through and i think the more we get away from real intensive formation in marriage priesthood deaconing whatever then the more we give ourselves to this kind of humdrum mediocre church yeah no and i and i do think formation is huge because i'm sure there were you know ladies who join um you know missionaries of charity and discern and be like this this is not for me and that's good that's healthy Mm -hmm. right like it's not for everyone you know it's interesting like out of every vocation the thing that we do the least for the least formation for is marriage and it's the it's the largest vocation right Mm -hmm. and it's the vocation that's supposed to breed other vocations and have you know sustain society and it's like what do you need six months you know you need six months and meet with one meeting in that six months and you know it's like crazy well it's crazy how long it takes the church to come around to some things but remember that like for hundreds of years and the beginning of the church this is the important part at the beginning new christians were adults that's the way the church thought you see what i'm saying like we're going Mm -hmm. into territories that aren't christian and making them christian so yeah we're gonna have kids become christians but we're this is an adult idea baptism is adult we Mm -hmm. are gonna baptize kids and they did but this is a mission to all people, right? And so when you think of it that way, you're encountering people that are already married. Mm-hmm. So marriage prep is not part of that original schema. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like when we spread the faith, we're taking people who have marriages and making them Christian marriages. But we're not thinking about that baby who's going to grow up in the church and one day need to discern a spouse and be prepared to have a great sacramental marriage. It's taken us 2,000 years almost to get to the point where we realize, oh, wait. We need to spend a lot of energy with saints, with holy ones, with members of the church before they get married to be able to have the most productive and fruitful marriage as part of our life or church as they can. Right. Absolutely. Okay. We're going to take a break and we'll be right back. The Paul George Show is made possible in part by our partners at Solidarity HealthShare. Solidarity is the Catholic solution to the health care problem. Are you paying too much for your health care cost? Solidarity HealthShare is a healthcare sharing ministry which provides an ethical way to fund healthcare costs while protecting and practicing our Catholic beliefs. Best yet, Solidarity HealthShare's members are exempt from the fines and penalties in the Affordable Care Act. Visit SolidarityHealthShare.org. That's SolidarityHealthShare.org. Welcome back to the show, Paul George, Deacon Adam Conk, producer Chad. Chad actually uh, went to the restroom at the break. <laughs> Jeez, <laughs> Paul, TMI. Know, but here's the TMI. Is that <laughs> it took too long. He followed protocol and wore his mask, but uh, came in and we we're starting the segment and uh, he still had his mask on, which we do have permission to take the mask off to talk into the microphone because you don't want to sound like this. <laughs> You wouldn't be able to hear it. So I look over, <laughs> and Uncle Chad has his mask on. Oops. Which it 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 hi- hides your beard. 
you know. That's weird. The, it's hard with the a beard. The beard makes mask. you look older than what you are. Yeah, I think so. I haven't gotten ID'd at any kind of liquor store or bar in like before I even turned 21. It's been a little while. Really? Because of the yeah, beard? because of the beard, I think. Yeah. And probably because I'm losing hair and the whole way around. You got the whole adult look. Yeah, that's why I got married, so I didn't have to try to find somebody after I lost hair. Well, nah, <laughs> well but, to yeah. all the bald folks, guys, not <laughs> folks, guys. <laughs> and gals, too. <laughs> I mean, if you're bald. Chad, you need to tell them they're loved. No, you are loved. I was just joking. You were just saying. It's just a joke. Right. I promise. I think and I'm, you're beautiful. I think my wife would love me. You're bald and you're beautiful. When I inevitably go bald. But you're already married. Bald is a look I think people like. So if you go bald, you, you just got to commit. Are to you it. going fully bald, or are you going like hair ring? Uh, I'll probably do a buzz cut for a while, you know, like short, mm-hmm. bald, mm-hmm. and then if it gets real bad, then I'll just go the whole thing, you know. Just it depends how I bald. Yeah, you know, I have no idea how it's gonna work. Like our friend Paul Hood, he just straight right. Bald. He just did it. But yeah. if it's like a receding hairline, I think you can get away. I've with been some balding for decades. And I don't know what to do. But but, but you, I'm gonna do a wig. I it's think. like a slow <laughs> balding then because yeah. it's, oh, it's not slow. happening. I'm not doing a toupee. I'm gonna do a wig. Really? Oh, a full yeah. wig. I'm gonna go all the way. If I'm gonna yeah, do it, you should definitely I'm go. Do it. You know what like I mean? a fro. Like, I think I think it always looks a little bit odd when older men have really dark hair. Yeah, and are bald. So in my DNA, sorry if the listeners yeah. are like, <laughs> I don't know what your we just lost a few listeners. There. <laughs> We're gonna get some angry letters. <laughs> yeah. On well, my DNA profile, it says that my chances of losing hair are, are slim. Like. You know, I'm not. Yeah, you got a full they head. They provide man. that in your DNA profile. Yeah, it'll tell you like what you know. Yeah, what you. How interesting! Yeah. I think I have a high chance of going bald. Well, yeah, obviously you're young. Wow, thanks, you're, Paul. You're, <laughs> you're, I mean, you're, <laughs> but you're in your 20s and you're already thinning out. Like, just do the math. Okay, we're gonna have a six pack of questions. Question. Question number one: Why do you hate Chad? <laughs> well, Jeez, man. I mean. <laughs> Haters are going to hate. Let's just say that. Um, no, there's no hate there. It's it's all love. I'm not self-conscious at all. Yeah. No, you're the one that brought up the whole balding thing. I didn't even right. bring it up. You know, it's okay. And, and not only did you bring it up, but then you made people who are listening who are bald feel really bad <laughs> about themselves. I had to clean up Chad's mess. So that's so, why you hate him. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Sorry for ruining your podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's your question. Yeah, that was okay. question number one. Question number two. <laughs> <laughs> question, uh, question number two. Oh, man, I'm off. All right. No, the answer to your question is no, I've never met Mother Teresa personally. You know, I never met her personally. I know you were going to ask. Yeah, I was curious. Yeah. She's been around here in Lafayette. She prayed at the cathedral. She, she did. She gave a talk mm-hmm. at, at the Cajun Dome. She stayed across the street, actually. What year was that? Do you know? 87. 87. Yeah. Um, I was pre-me. She packed the Cajun Dome. Yeah. Yeah, in 88 or 89, she was in Phoenix, Arizona. I mean, she did, you know, she would sell out arenas. I don't know, sell out whatever, like, as far as, like, seating. Um, and I'm sure it's the thing that she hated the most, you know, was that. But, man, people would just would come in droves, mm-hmm. you know. Speaking of, I mean, you get a taste of living the public life to some extent, you know, maybe not like Mother Teresa winning a Nobel Prize and the whole nine, but how have you kept your faith despite it? Or maybe maybe it helps, I don't know, but does that make sense? 
I, I think being rooted in community and family is huge. I mean, if you're not, uh, then, then you have no checks and balances, no ca- accountability in your life, you know? And I think we found that out a lot with, with maybe single folks, they feel alone, they struggle, or, you know, even people in their vocation, they, they're not connected with their spouse or priests who live alone. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like it, it there's this lack of sense of community, accountability, uh, rootedness, you know, I mean, I wrote a book and, you know, my kids could care less, <laughs> you know, they didn't read it, you know, they don't, it doesn't matter to them. Like I'm mm-hmm. just am who I am. And that's like really good because it's like, you know, it roots me back in just the reality of living life and, and being authentically who I am, you know? So, and that's what mother Teresa had. That's what religious orders have is like a sense of community being rooted and they're grounded. It's about the mission. It's about Jesus. And you know, Nothing else. So I think we're on question number four. Do we all agree? Sure. I don't really know. What was question? No. Well, why do you hate Chad? <laughs> Have you ever met Mother Teresa? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then how do you deal with uh, you know, public attention? Yeah, we can Catholic call it life? four questions. Oh, the, you know. All right. Yeah. So question number four. So you mentioned something that I think is important. I'd love for you to elaborate on. But if we're married right now, and maybe we didn't make the best decisions going into the marriage... You know, a lot of us experience our conversion later in life. Absolutely. You know? mm-hmm. um, and you said, look, it's not hopeless. Can you just kind of elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, I mean, there are stories, you know, people get married, they get married in the church or outside of the church, they get their marriage blessed later, or whatever the case may be, and maybe they have a conversion later on or they, they have a conversion together. Like they're getting, you know, they're starting to realize that faith is important for their family and it used to not be and now it is. And the reality is, is that nothing's lost from your past mistakes. God can use anything for the benefit of your good moving forward, you know, and we learn from those and we grow from them. So, you know, if you got married, not really knowing fully what marriage was about, or you got married outside the church or whatever the case may be, God can use all that to move you forward and, and grow in your vocation and in marriage. And so don't just throw it all out. Like whatever you've learned, move forward with it and allow God to teach you even more and more. And learning more about the sacrament of marriage helps you have a vision. We talked about vision and mission. Like when you understand God's vision and mission for marriage, then it's like, oh, it makes so much sense. And it, it feels right. It, it's like, yes, okay, that's what I want my marriage to be about. Then you start kind of doing the steps moving forward together to have that type of marriage. Question number five on that, do you ever, I mean, I don't know if you've counseled somebody, but that doesn't seem like, when we're, maybe the spouses aren't on the same page, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Um, how do you help a spouse work through that with their their others? Or like help a husband if his wife is not on the same mission or help her get to that place. Yeah, it's much easier when I'm working with a couple who they want the same thing, they just don't know how to get there, mm-hmm. and they they have different opinions on how to get there, and there's some tension. It's really difficult for a couple, you know, when one person really desires to have, you know, a great marriage, and the other person, you know, is kind of like, ah, you know. Mm-hmm. It, it it really, marriage is two people, you know, with God, three. So it it, it does take that person's desire to kind of come out and, and that might be part of the conversation of the work is like, well, what is it that you really want and desire? At the end of the day, I think people who are married, they, they want and desire the same thing, but maybe some brokenness or woundedness is hiding that, you know? So 
they're checked out. You know, maybe they've had some trauma in the marriage, some some tough things that have, you know, people are starting to maybe give up, grow weary. And so they're more like, I don't really care anymore. But they really do, deep down. They want a good marriage and they want to be loved. They want to authentically love their spouse. Right on. All right, question number six tomorrow's Mother Teresa's uh, memorial. What are you doing to celebrate? How do you do that day? I can't say. Like you literally can't say? It would just sound really strange. What I'm doing tomorrow. That sounds awesome. Well, I'm it going, actually sounds really strange now that you say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Is it right for me to go hunting on Mother Teresa's? Are you hunting for souls or well, birds? Yeah. Or both? I mean, I mean. <laughs> the first is always. The second is just sometimes. You know what I mean? <laughs> but I sometimes am going to be always hunting for praying <laughs> for her intercession, you know, tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's cool. I'm, I'm excited for it. So, you know, I don't. I don't know if we're doing a cake or something, but, you know. Well, you better now. I better now. <laughs> I better now. Blue and white cake. Blue and white cake. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There you go. So. Man, I remember one Halloween, Mary, she's not going to remember that she was one, but we dressed up like Mother Teresa for Halloween. That was about that as cute as it gets. Man. Year-old baby girl dressed like Mother <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> she's like, about you, as tall as Mother Teresa. She's like, no, I want to be a pumpkin. No, you're going to be Mother Teresa. She was one. Right, she didn't have a choice. Yeah, she couldn't even voice it. Yeah, well, if you could dress up like a saint for Halloween, who I was forced. Teresa? I was forced to do that. I am not a dress up guy. Like I never have been, but I was forced to one time. I was attending this thing where it was like, look, all the adults are dressing up like saints. I know that sounds weird. I was like, I'm not doing it. And they're like, No, you're gonna do it. I'm not doing it. So I ended up doing it. <laughs> I just dressed up. Like what would myself. you dress up as? Uh, Francis Silos. Oh, go. I on. put on some glasses, and I didn't have the beard. And right a, and a little cassock, right. and I, yeah, it looks a lot like. I would just okay. dress up like myself and make some <laughs> smart aleck comment of like, "We're all called to be saints." <laughs> Cute. Cute. I'll do Pierre Giorgio. Just have a, you know, a cigar. Mm. Before the record, that yeah. was the last time I'm doing that. <laughs> For the record, you're just gonna make your kids do it. I'll just now. wear my deacon shirt, I guess. Yeah, there you go. All right, so thanks for listening to the show, everyone. You can get the show on podcast. Um, uh, discovertheartofliving.com, iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, share it, uh, like it, be a part of it. Um, you go to discovertheartofliving.com. Thanks to Kel FT Radio, Catholic Radio for Acadiana for being a part of the show and for all of our sponsors. Um, thanks to Chad and Adam, and we'll be back next week. God bless.